0: So I'm glad to be back with y'all. Um, I was looking at the, uh, the picture. Um, I, I've aged since that picture. Just uh, the, uh, <laughs> the one with the, the guy with the dark hair. I have way, a lot more salt now uh, than pepper. So I apologize. I need to update my headshot. shot. Uh, <laughs> but I'm so glad to be here. Um, turn, with you, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, um, verse 13. We'll look at... Matthew 5, verse 13 to 16, Jesus Christ has just preached the beginning of what's known as the Sermon on the Mount, and all the blessed bees, the beatitudes, blessed are the meek, blessed are the pure in heart. What is a blessed person? A blessed person who knows their need for God's grace, and someone who's experienced God's grace at the core of their being. Um, And so what does it look like to be a rescued person in this world? How are we to live as the kingdom of God in this world, loving this world to life? And so that's what Jesus turns to in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do... lean on you, we need you, we ask, Spirit, that you would fill us, that you would use your word to bring about healing and that you would fill us so that we might go out and be salt and light, that you would give us discernment and wisdom that you would give us eyes to see people that need to be loved, that are right by us. Thank you, Jesus, that you do this through us by your Spirit. It's in your precious name we ask. Amen. So how do rescued people... How do people who've experienced being brought home to God in Christ... How do we live in the world now? It's a really important question. A really important question, obviously, for a missions conference. Um, There was a book that came out, uh, it's in the last 10 years or so, um, called To Change the World, written by a sociologist, uh, Christian sociologist at the University of Virginia named James Hunter, Um, and in it he has Three different examples of how we should not engage culture as Christians. And then one way that he feels like is biblical and true and right. And so tell me if any, the, the, the three uh, ways that are common but not biblical. Uh, the first one is we're not called to be just defensive against the world or the culture. And he cites a lot of examples and he's a... He's a historical sociologist, so he, he's looked down through history, especially in America, how Christians have just been defensive against culture in order to try to engage culture. Here's what he means by that. This means we are not salt and light if all we're doing is fighting with the culture. This is where we see that politics playing a big role, either on the right or on the left. We're always talking about hot-button issues. It's always sort of negative We're telling the world it's bad all the time. Um, Using power to sort of win a culture war. This is sort of the billboards on the interstate approach uh, in sort of the cartoon example. Uh, You know, driving on I-40, I'm from Arkansas, and uh, originally, and so driving from Little Rock to Nashville, you see, like, the billboards with, like, the flames coming up. Like, uh, just the scary billboards about how bad America is and how mad God is at everyone. Um, And so that's a just defensive against culture. The 24-hour news stations, the right and the left, he said that's not being salt and light. That is, and in fact, he says, even as a sociologist, that doesn't impact the culture. Just being defensive against the culture doesn't impact the culture. The second one is, we are called not to just retreat from the culture. That's the check out. Uh, not engage the culture at all approach. Trying to build a world where, li- where the world doesn't get in at all. Um, invisible or visible fences. Just a fortified, we're not going to be part of the culture. He said that that is historically shown not to impact the culture obvious reasons this is when we start our own versions of everything so like uh, I won't go into detail but like our own version so we have a Christian version of everything and this is not Christian music is great it's awesome I love Christian music so you heard me say that I live in Nashville the Mecca of Christian music but it's like if we if we start our own Christian like everything so we just watch Christian movies or we just go to Christian restaurants and we just eat Christian this and we just do Christian that it's like a, what, a diet version of culture. How about that? Diet paintings. Diet music. Right? It's like when you're drinking a diet Coke and you're like, this is like a Coke. No, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> That's retreating from the culture, and he said that doesn't affect the culture either. And the third approach is sort of what more would be classically sort of the liberal approach, we would say is just being relevant to the culture does not impact the culture. This means there's no difference between the culture and us. In other words, we never say this is wrong. We sort of accept everything about the culture. Our lifestyles, our approaches to everything look exactly the same as the culture. We accept the world's view on money and sex and power. We don't ever say anything is wrong. Um, So we affirm everything, which is definitely the Vanderbilt approach. in other words, we're never going to say no. We're never going to say anything's true. We're never going to think We're never going to stand up and say something's right or wrong. He said that approach, relevant, just being relevant to, that doesn't change the culture either. So not just offensive against, not just retreat from, and not just relevant to. Here's what he says. The biblical approach is faithful presence within the culture. And he gives all these different examples. He says, Christians need to take a, we need to t- take a time out from the culture war. He said, by the way, I actually heard him speak. The culture war that, that, that America sort of fighting on the left and right, who's going to win the culture war? He says, it's been over for a hundred years. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's, we, we lost, okay? Uh, and so the idea that there's this culture war, we're going to fight this culture war, he says, you're sort of reenacting wars that don't exist anymore in a lot of ways. So what are we called to do? To be faithfully present in the culture, and that's what we're going to look at today in our talk. Point one, what is faithful? Salt and light. Second, what is present within? And then, so what does that look like? Faithful, point one. Present, point two. So what? So we're going to look at faithful. So if we're called to be faithful, I think this is exactly what Jesus Christ is saying. To be faithful means to stand for truth in the decay. In the brokenness. If God, as we said last night, if God has always been and will always be a father perfectly loving his son through the spirit. That is the truest thing you can say about God. He is a father perfectly loving his son through the spirit. It's who he always has been. It's who he always will be. What does it look like for us to be children of the father who have the spirit indwelling us? In a world, we're called to be faithful. And so that's what Jesus says, we're called to be salt and light. Salt is a preservative in the ancient world, primarily. So we're to fight decay. And that means we have to recognize the struggle, both in our own hearts, in our relationships, in our city, in our state that there is a massive struggle that's going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. There is a battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent that is still raging on to this day. And you have to see the struggle as being primarily evil. The struggle is hard, and it is a battle against evil in every form. I think about this word tyranny. There's tyranny in this world. Evil is tyrannical. We think about leaders like a leader in North Korea, like the, the entire regime of North Korea, or Hitler, or Stalin. We think of those figures. But a tyrannical rule is an oppressive rule that brings about death and slavery. And so we see evil in all of its forms as being that kind of rule that wants to rule over us. It's satanic. An oppressive, dehumanizing power that destroys beauty and hope. And we come in contact with that every day. It's an assault on life, physically, with things like cancer. Um, And this this is extremely close to my family because my brother-in-law, Mark Steele, who grew up just down the road died at the age of 25 with a glioblastoma. They found it in October, and he died in April. And I watched my in-laws and my wife and and my other brother-in-law go through absolute misery watching him die. That's evil. Brain tumors? Concentrated evil. Evil. In other words, it's not just a chemical thing. It's not just a physiological thing. It is an absolute assault on life. And we have to start seeing at every single level, even at the subatomic level, as a tyrannical force pushing against the light. We see it, in psych- we see it psychologically in self-destruction. I see it all the time. Where students are never pretty enough. They're never smart enough. No matter what they have. I see so much self-destruction, I see so much rage, I see so much anger, I see so much fear. We see this tyrannical struggle relationally with bullying and snobbery. Snobbery, elitism of all kinds. We see it relationally in, our sex- in the world of sexual assault that we're constantly being confronted with in our culture. It's all from the same root. In the words of Bono, come on, I was born in the 70s, okay? You too? He said, you plant a demon seed, you'll raise a flower of fire. And so we have flowers of fire all around us. You see it in the black flags of terror. We saw in Charlottesville several years ago the smoking tiki tiki torches of neo-fascism. It's police brutality. It's teen suicides. It's a swastika. It's all from the same seed. And Jesus came to bring an assault to it. He came to confront the powers of darkness. To confront the accuser, the liar, Satan. And to bring his shalom. That's a good word. That old Hebrew word, shalom, that doesn't just mean peace. It means human flourishing in every single sense. There was a speaker named uh, James K. Smith who came and spoke uh, at RUF uh, uh, staff training this December. He wrote a book called You Are What You Love. And here's how he dis- defines shalom. So think of the contrast of the evil and the tyranny with the word shalom. And that's we're getting at what Jesus is saying here. He says, what is shalom? It's a picture of flourishing that we imagine in a visceral, often unarticulated way a vague yet attractive sense of where we think true happiness is found, the vision of which Cosette in Les Mis sings her castle on a cloud. Most of us travel through life with less fanciful visions luring us onward, but such unconscious visions are no less powerful. To be human is to desire the kingdom. Social, psychological, emotional, relational Flourishing. Lewis called it the echoes of Eden, when everything was teeming with life. Those moments when I was a little boy at my grandma's house and standing under the massive oak trees in southwest Arkansas and smelling the honeysuckle and then going at her table and eating her fried chicken and then those moments where everything was right and good and I felt loved and cared for, those are echoes of the flourishing, the opposite of tyrannical evil. That's what Jesus came to bring. It's what Jesus says to the woman with a bleeding for 12 years. And the more that she tried, the more money she spent, the more she gave. She became worse and worse until finally she was at a complete dead end in her life. Jesus is walking through her town with this massive crowd. And she comes out, scurries like this poor little kitty cat and just grabs The hem of his garment. And then she scurries back out into the shadows. And Jesus stops on his way to heal a very important person's daughter. He stops. And he said, who touched me? Who touched my robe? And the disciples are always confused with him. Like, what are you talking about? Everybody's touching your robe. Who touched me? Somebody touched me and power went out for me. And we think that maybe this transpired for minutes. Can you imagine? What Was it five minutes, ten minutes? And she stayed there in the shadows of shame and tyranny and darkness and evil where she's lived her whole life, but healed. Healed in the shadows. And he said, where are you? Come out. She was afraid. I wonder, I wonder if I admit it then I made him unclean because I'm unclean. She Everywhere she went, she had to say, I'm unclean, I'm unclean, get out of the way. You talk about shame. And then finally, she she scurries back. She falls down before Jesus and tells him everything. And you know what Jesus does? This is shalom. He said, daughter. It's the first thing he says to her. It's the only time that word is used in Mark's gospel. Daughter. Daughter. Why did he stop? He wanted to give her her name back. That's flourishing right there. And he says, go in peace. He says, shalom on you, daughter. That's the opposite of evil. Y'all, that's what it means to be salt and light, faithfully present within. People are touching us and rubbing up against us, and we have the author of shalom in us. Flourishing. It's how we use our words. My friend Jeremy Jones used to say, he's also a Jacksonian. Jeremy Jones used to say, an embarrassingly simple and concrete acts of kindness In other words, if you go to a missions conference and we think that it's so far out there, yes, we should dream big, absolutely dream big, but the reality is right next to your shoulder. The person in the shadows is right next to you. It's how we use words with everyone around us. In other words, we have to start thinking microscopically about salt and light. How we use words, do we build down or we tear down or do we destroy? Do we destroy or do we restore? Are we using our words to promote shalom by the jokes we tell? Or when you're posting things, you're asking the question, why am I posting this? And what I'm posting, is it going to create FOMO, the fear of missing out with someone? Or is what am I posting going to create life in someone else? It's how we use our words when we gossip. Like... Do I, is this going to create life? Is this going to create truth? Is it going to create flourishing? We start asking those questions. How do we do our work? What does it mean to be faithful in our work? Doctors, you push back the tyranny of evil every day. People in healthcare, one of the most tangible things that you do. Nurses and uh, healthcare care professionals in all the possible ways. This is one of the most tangible, visceral things. You are coming in contact. Or as one, an, another lyric from Bono, you kick the darkness till it bleeds daylight. Every day you show up, and there's drudgery in what you're doing. There's there's monotony in what you're doing, but we're pushing it back. I think about my my. um, I have a a condition called cholinergic urticaria. How about that for a mouthful? There's basically what it means. When I get hot, I break out in hives. Like you tell a preacher who's a spaz like me. (laughs) I can't even get hot. I'm going to break out in hives. I'm itching all over the place. It feels like a million ant bites all over my body. That's what happens. And I went to my dad's doctor. He had no idea what I don't know what that is. Well, thanks a lot, Dad. My father-in-law didn't know what to do with it. And finally, I went to this this young female, this young doctor who came to me. She says, we're going to find out what's wrong with you. Because I was depressed. I couldn't run. I loved to run. I couldn't get hot. I live in the South. She said, we're going to find out. First thing didn't work. The second thing didn't work. So we're going to find out. And then finally she found out a way. She read some obscure article that they're treating it with a certain medication. And I have my life back. That's flourishing for me. She gave me my life back. She had no idea. I told her how much it meant to me. She, tears started coming out of her eyes. She was a Christian. You know, that is a microscopic example of a 40-something-year-old man who's been given his life back so that he can come preach to you without worrying about breaking out in hives. That's salt and light. So we have to start thinking in that way. What does it mean to be faithful? Faithfulness. What does it mean for us to repent of our, of our wanting to be a big deal? For some of us. So many different examples. Faithful means to push back the darkness in our life, in our world. Second, present. We're faithfully present. Salt and light only, think about this, y'all. Salt and light only make sense in relation to something else. You only ask for salt because you want to put it into food. Salt with, just by itself, no one does that. If you you tell me that you just eat salt by yourself, I'm sorry, that's a strange thing. (laughs) Salt only makes sense in relation to food. Think about how many times the, the when you go into some house or something like that, the, sometimes if you open a cabinet and there's nothing else in the cabinets, there's salt in there. It's like the most ubiquitous, it's always there, it's everywhere, always there, always in the cabinet. It's like salt and baking soda, right? <laughs> because people, they think that can leave this, because this is so everywhere. It's so But here's the thing, salt is it enhances flavor. You put it in food. Like you Salt, butter without salt is Vaseline, people. (laughs) Right? It enhances flavor. It enhances life. This is what Jesus is saying. You in this world, because you belong to me and you're part of the new kingdom, the new shalom, you've experienced this. You've begun to experience the healing that God's doing in your life, the the being brought home, but be reconciled and justified. You have this new flavor inside of you. And so when you go to places, you make things taste better. That's why we don't do diet culture. We should have the best of everything. We should be doing the best stuff, making the best art. We should be telling the best stories. We should make things people want to savor life. We are the people that are that go into the darkness. We're the people that wanted to. You're the people that want to stay in the neighborhood. Want to be here, with it. In fact, there was a, a, a historian named with the last name Stark who dealt a lot with, who spent a lot of time with the first and early Christian centuries. And there there were several massive plagues where a lot of people were dying in Rome. And everyone sort of just lived on top of each other. Um, And so these plagues were just wrecking the entire culture. But one of the things that brought so many people into the kingdom were how the Christians responded to the plagues. Listen to this. Here's what it means to be present. Many in nursing, this is from Stark's book, many in nursing and curing others, this is, the, this is what the Christians did, transferred their death to themselves and died in their place. He said the heathen or the non-Christian behaved the opposite way. This is, from an actual, this is from an actual historian of the time. The pagan behaved the opposite way. They pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead, but the Christians went right into the city and stayed. So you want to prove whether or not we believe this gospel? We actually move toward the sick. We get the infection ourselves because that's exactly what Jesus did. When this woman reached out and touched the hem of his garment, yeah, he did become unclean. He became the most, as Luther said, the most sinful person that ever lived on this earth on the cross. Jesus Christ transferred all the sickness, all the evil, all the death right into his own person. And he sunk down below the human condition and he detonated Shalom. That's what he did. Christians are people who go back into it. I had a counselor in Memphis uh, named Ted, and I would go to his office. There's a picture of this. I would go into his office, and he had lighthouses all over his office. He was kind of a weird dude, man. We called him the gentle giant, this big, tall guy, and he had all these these. These lighthouses all over his office, and it was a very scary, stressful time. I was 33 years old when I became the senior pastor of this big church. And I, I thought everybody, I thought I was going to last for five minutes. I was scared to death. I was 15 years younger than the youngest elder. So I was going into this guy, I was so stressed out, so scared, and I was asking, what's the deal with all the lighthouses, Ted? There was one at the back of his office, and it, had, it was a lighthouse, and it had the waves, the ocean, just almost engulfing that lighthouse. He goes, that's what this is, Richie. I'm reminding you that the gospel's true. I'm reminding you all this is true, and all the waves are surrounding you. All the chaos is surrounding you, and you can't be sunk. I'm a, this is the lighthouse. This is the truth. I'm present with you in it. God's not leaving you. Even if they run you off. And they might. the lighthouse, in the storm. That's what Jesus Christ is. He doesn't take us out of the chaos. He goes right into the belly of the beast with us. Do you know why? He beat death, people. Or as my dear friend Linda Elliott, 80-year-old little spitfire from Arkansas who I talk to every single Thursday, you know what she said? Richie, Jesus has turned your grave into a treasure chest. We're going to go right into death itself. We actually become more alive when we die. So we move toward the dying. We move toward the darkness. We move toward the dirt. We move toward the fear. We move toward those things because we have been brought from death to life in Jesus Christ. We move towards brokenness. And folks, where is brokenness? It's right where we live. It's right down the hall. It's in our own bedroom. It starts at home. Sometimes it's easier to fly across the Atlantic and deal with brokenness. So I don't have to deal with the brokenness that's right next door to me. It's right where we work. It's right where people are hurting. Where does God want me to be salt and light? Right where you are. Because here's the thing. Jesus doesn't say you'll be light. You are light. You know why because he's the light of the world and no one's darkness will not extinguish him the darkness has never and will never overcome him and if christ is in you you're the light of the world it's not because you're so bright it's because he is the light he is the salty one that makes us salty okay so how so what close with this The Holy Spirit in you wants to get out of you. The Spirit who is in you is the love of the Father through the Son. The eternal love of the Father through the Son is inside of us, and it wants to bust outside of us. And it reminds me of driving down to that same place in Magnolia. Driving down, we would drive down. Every other weekend, we'd go see my grandparents, and my cousins lived down there, too, and it was so much fun to play. We'd just go out and run outside, out in the country. And so for a kid from Little Rock who grew up in a neighborhood, to be able to just get on a go-kart or just run barefoot, it was just, that was Edenic. That was like the Garden of Eden for me. And I remember in the summertime, my cousins would just get close to the road while we were driving, my we were in my dad's old uh, 1980s van, and I, they would see us coming around the corner of that county road, see us coming around the corner and, and we would stand up in the van. No one wore seatbelts back then. We would stand up in the van and we could we would look out, look out at them as we were going through the driving down the road looking out, just ready to bust out of that car. And then finally when when Dad would stop that car at the end of the driveway, we would throw that big door open and we would just bust out. Y'all here's the thing. In Jackson, Mississippi or wherever wherever God's calling you to go, y'all. God, the Spirit of God, the love of the Father is pressing up against the window of your heart, against brokenness. It's not you being loving. It's Him. And He is, He can't wait to bust out. He loves you first, and then He loves through you. One day, that love is going to extinguish the darkness forever and ever and ever. Love is going to remake Everything through the work of Jesus. Here's a really practical example I'll close with. When I was a little boy, my parents had a very, very bad marriage. And most of my memories, uh, and I've actually talked with my mom and dad about this now. It's really, most of my memories, my dad wasn't around. And my mom was very depressed. She spent a lot of time at, uh, just in her bedroom, very depressed. As a little boy, I was very scared. I didn't understand that. Um, um, and it's a big part of my story, but there was a lady who lived across the street, Miss Jean. And Miss Jean was probably 15, 20 years older than my parents. And Miss Jean, I look back now, probably knew that there was something going on when this little boy was probably four years old, three years old, four years old, would come over to her house and just talk to her. She could kind of begin to read between the lines. And I remember Miss Jean, she, was, she would talk to me like I was a real person. She wouldn't do this goo-goo-ga-ga kind of stuff. She would say, you know, she talked to me like a real person. She didn't talk down to me. She made me feel like I was real. She said, hello, Richie. How are you today? And I would just talk to her, and I would talk to her all kind of things. And then one day she asked me, she said, um, what do you really like, Richie? And I said... She was talking about food, and I said, I love fruit cocktail. You know, the fruit cocktail wasn't a can. It's just basically syrup <laughs> with that grape that's like gray, green. <laughs> Man, I loved it. I told her, I love, I love fruit cocktail. I thought that was a very refined and sophisticated thing to like. <laughs> I love fruit cocktail. And then one day, she called me over to her house, and she was one of these kind of old-school, kind of formal ladies, and at the end of her of her, dining, her formal dining room table in her finest china, there was fruit cocktail. Shalom. How microscopic is that? It changed my life. It changed my life. It was the, it was, I think it was the first time I really felt like I mattered. Someone heard me. To, to have someone... Do something so insignificant. Yo, most of Jesus' ministry was in the boondocks. He was a penniless teacher from Nazareth in the middle of nowhere. And he stops in the middle of a town so he can call someone daughter. Folks, there are no little people. And there are no little events. Love right where you are today. It's God doing it through you. And one day, we'll see the whole story. We'll see how it all fits together. But God's calling you to be little bitty and love right where you are. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for just these stories. Thank you for how you've loved me um, and how your love wins. And so, Lord, as this group goes out, even today, as we go about places that we're called to this week and this month and this year, I pray, Lord, that you would just love people through us and let us get out of the way.